The MLB All-Star break has arrived, with the hot-button topic being Juan Soto, declining $440 million. I will undoubtedly dive into how I feel about that as we close out the first half of the baseball season. Cam Smith wins the Open at St. Andrews, but all the talk is about how Rory McIlroy blew another golden opportunity to win a major. Or did he? The Suns matched the Pacers' offer sheet for DeAndre Ayton, but is that a good thing? And the Devils were making moves to bolster their roster while the Islanders are sitting quiet, just standing by. Get ready for a rapid-fire assessment on all that the sports world has for us diehard and casual fans. It's all coming up, but first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You could also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic and excellent spirits as it's the beginning of another week with a heat wave on its way to hit the New York City area in the coming days. And you know I am ready for it. It's going to be low to mid-90s pretty much from tomorrow through the weekend. So bring it on, Mother Nature. I am ready for it. And despite the sports world exhibiting a little downtime, it's always hot, as I'll share the latest and greatest of what's going on as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me, going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. And like I mentioned, even with this downtime, the sports dead zone part two, as I've called it, there is some things percolating on the sports stove, including DeAndre Ayton, The Suns have matched the offer sheet that the Indiana Pacers put forth there on Friday, and they matched it pretty quick, which I was a little bit surprised, and I'll get into that later on, as well as the NHL. Free agency period starting to die down a little bit. You still had some signings. You still had some wheeling and dealing, especially across the river in New Jersey with the Devils, and it made me wonder, what's happening with the Islanders? Lou Lamorello, is the magic gone? What is going on there? So I'll share my two cents on that later on. Of course, the Open yesterday, which I probably should start off with that. But Cam Smith with that incredible back nine. I know the story is going to be Rory McIlroy and how he was unable to secure 
his first major golf win since 2014. And in fact, the Open back eight years ago, I know it was probably just dumb luck for him, but I'll dissect what happened there yesterday at St. Andrews as now the golf season, as far as the majors are concerned, are now in the books for 2022. But we'll begin with the baseball as we now hit the All-Star break and we can all exhale a little bit over the last few weeks with baseball being the one sport that is front and center here in the universe. We all know that the fall and winter sports are still a few months away. Football, believe it or not, the Raiders will open up training camp on Wednesday and then a week from tomorrow you have the rest of the NFL opening up their camps throughout the country. So everybody will have their sights set on football before you know it, and even college football for that matter. But baseball reigns supreme at the moment. And before I even get into what's happening, we could talk about Seattle. Now 14 games in a row that they've won, which matches the Braves' winning streak. I believe they had 14 in June, which is the longest in Major League Baseball this year. So let's see if they could extend that to 15 after the break. And you do have an interesting matchup coming out of this break where the Yankees will go to Houston to make up the two games going back to before the lockout, a doubleheader, which we'll talk more about on Thursday and we'll get into all the wildcard scenarios because that will be safe for them to really get ourselves in the groove for the second half, for what's to come, and also look forward to a trade deadline, which will be in early August. So right now at the moment, with the backdrop being LA, Chavez Ravine starting tonight with the home run derby, Of course, the All-Star game tomorrow, we had the draft last night, which Jackson Holiday, the son of former Major League player Matt Holiday, was picked by the Orioles, and you had a lot of father-son duos, whether it was Carl Crawford's son being drafted early on, and there's another one that I'm missing off the top of my head. You had those couple of players with the connection with their dads playing in the Major Leagues in the past highlighting the top of the draft. And of course, the Major League Baseball draft does not have the same appeal that the NFL or even the NBA draft has. We talked about that last week with the NHL draft. Same deal, unless you're going to get that can't-miss impact type of player coming out of junior or even coming out of college in the NHL. But with baseball now at its break, and the big story coming out over the weekend was what took place in D.C. And no, it's not the Nationals as far as them being the basement dwellers in the sport. But the news coming out of the nation's capital that Juan Soto, who had been offered a 15-year, $440 million deal to where he and his representation, led by Scott Boris, of course, had turned it down. So with the GM, Mike Rizzo, who last month said that we are not trading Juan Soto, And as it was, they were working behind the scenes to try to give him the sweetheart deal of a lifetime for him to stay in a national uniform for the rest of his career so they could retire his number, maybe along the way build a championship team considering that he'll be 24 in October and that they could have this long-lasting marriage for a guy that could stay in the organization for his career, have his day in the sun when it's all said and done, provided that he stays healthy. But instead, they could have backed up five Brinks trucks and it could have been 15 years at a billion dollars. And it would not have made a difference because Juan Soto would look elsewhere, not only for 
a better payday, but also greener pastures because he could see the writing on the wall where this team is not going to be good over the next few years. He does not want to waste his pre-prime and even prime years in Washington with a team that's on the rebuild. And I think a lot of this has to do with the agent. Because you would think that if Soto wanted to get the big bucks and the Nationals were willing to do that. Remember, they originally put out, I believe it was 13 years and 350 million going back to the end of last year. And now they bring a new deal, two more years, 90 million more dollars, and it still wasn't enough. So it made you think that with Boris, him being the orchestrator behind all this, because I don't want to hear from Soto. Of course, he took the high road. He says, I'm going to let my representation handle this. I just want to concentrate on baseball once the news came out and he was interviewed. But Boris, as we all know, he's going to try to squeeze out every last dime. And like I said, the Nationals could say, here's a billion dollars or put forth a blank check and they're still not going to take it because they know that they want Soto to be in a high-profile big market to where I'm sure he'll be able to not only just get the big bucks, but maybe Madison Avenue, commercials. We get it that there's a little bit of a language barrier, but still a young, prodigious talent who still has a lot of baseball left. And you would think that those greener pastures are going to mean bigger bucks as far as endorsements, billboards, things of that nature. So that's the big picture that Boris and Soto are looking at to where the Nationals are going to have no choice but to trade their young star. And it's awful because you have a team in the Nationals who just three years ago won a World Series. And to think they didn't really get to celebrate it because after they won in 2019, remember COVID hit at the start of 2020. They didn't play their first game until July with the 60-game season. And then, slowly but surely, Max Scherzer gets traded We have the scenario where Steven Strasburg, who signed that big deal in the offseason in 2019, but he has barely pitched. Anthony Rendon signs a big deal to go to Los Angeles and play in Anaheim, and he's barely played as well. And the Nationals never really basked in the glow of that championship to where Soto is pretty much the one shining grace of that team. And now he's going to be out the door sometime, you would think, in the next year or so. And mind you, his contract, current one that is, isn't up until after the 2024 season. So they still have control the rest of this year, next year, and even the following year. Because remember, he came up in 18, so with the free agent clock, it didn't start until 19. So obviously when you do the math, that's six years from 2019 to 2024. So there is absolutely no rush for the Nationals to make this trade, and you know that they're going to do whatever it takes to get how many players, forget about draft picks, because we all know draft picks in Major League Baseball is not like the other sports. But they're going to go for, and I would think it's going to be one of two scenarios. The first one being clean out a team's farm system, number one. But I would think they'd be smarter to be able to get a couple of young, ready-made either prospects or major league players and some up-and-coming prospects in the farm system for whichever team that's willing to part with in order to bring the services of Soto back to their organization. And mind you, they're going to have to sign him 
to we, what we would think would be at least a $500 million contract, which would be the richest in all of sports because even with the $440 million offer that was presented to Soto and Boris, it still wouldn't eclipse Patrick Mahomes' $450 million contract that he signed with the Chiefs a couple of years back. So we all know that between contract and, of course, having to part way with players, top prospects, etc., it is going to be super rich for any team that's going to procure the services of Juan Soto pretty much from now until the year 2038. And in this case, it's sad because you cannot fault the Nationals here. And you wonder, even throughout the course of the weekend, and I didn't watch any National games, of course, or even tuned in to see what the reaction would be like from the fans. And who knows, maybe part of it is Juan Soto, but we do know who's driving this vehicle. It's all Scott Boris. So if the boos were to rain down from the 10,000 that visited Nationals Park over the weekend... Yes, they're going to be directed at Soto, but it's really directed toward the agent. Because the Nats did exactly what they had to do here and up in the ante, and you can't go even north of $440 million for this player because Soto, we know how wonderful of a hitter he is. We know how great of an eye he has at the plate, his approach. Anything and everything about his offensive game, he doesn't have a weakness. Or if he does, it's minimal. Now, no one's going to confuse him with Barry Bonds out in left field, winning a ton of gold gloves, being a defensive stalwart out in that position. But we all know that wherever he goes, it's going to be about his offense and what he's able to do to not only carry a team, but also extend that lineup, be that threat, left-handed bat, young hitter, etc. But even the bigger question, besides what the Nationals will get in return, for a player like Soto, is when. And like I mentioned, he's still not going to be a free agent until after the 2024 season. So there is no rush. But you do have to wonder, will Boris put on an NBA player empowerment full court press to the point where they're going to have to force the Nationals' hand to make a trade because two and a half years is still a long way to go. And of course, a lot can happen to Soto. First and foremost, he can get injured. And if he does suffer a bad injury, then the stock will plummet big time. Considering, yes, he's 23 at the moment, and he still has his whole future ahead of him. This year, I think they may lay low. So even with the trade deadline upcoming, I don't think the Nationals, yes, of course, they're going to listen to offers, I'm sure. But I don't think a team is going to be ready to just hand over a ton of prospects or major league ready players for Soto unless they're looking to completely do a revamp here on the fly with two plus years left on his contract. It is possible. But the Nats are not in a rush. They're going to wait for the godfather offer, I'm sure, in order for them to pull the trigger on a deal as such because this is going to be monumental. I mean, you would think. So when this will happen, probably not until the offseason at the very least, because teams are not going to trade off prospects. Here's an example, and there's no way that this is ever going to happen, but just for starters and just for the sake of this discussion, let's say 
if Mike Rizzo called the Seattle Mariners and said, I'll give you Juan Soto, but Julio Rodriguez has to be in that deal. And we know Rodriguez is probably going to win your AL Rookie of the Year by a landslide and is going to be in LA for the All-Star game. I'm sure Seattle will hang up the phone because not only would they have to part with Rodriguez and a ton of other prospects, but they're going to have to pay him $500 million in the process. And there's no way on God's green earth that the Mariners are going to do that. But again, for this discussion, to think that Rodriguez would have to go in a deal mid-season, there's no way that any team would do that. Maybe in the offseason when they have some time to really look at the landscape, not only to bring in Soto, but to sign him and how they're going to ingratiate this player to their franchise, to their fan base and the organization. And then in turn, they're going to have to send a boatload back to the Nationals. I mean, this is fascinating on many levels and it could be a deal that we may never see because here's a player that's already won a World Series. He's a great young talent in the sport. Again, as we've said a million times, still has 10, maybe 15 years ahead of him, whatever the length of the contract is going to be, and they're going to get a surplus and then some, but what that surplus is and when this is going to take place are the $64,000 questions that I'm sure every baseball fan not only wants to know, but wants to see how this is all going to unfold. So this is something that we're definitely going to have to keep an eye on. Maybe not right now. I would think more in the offseason because rarely you get this type of blockbuster deal at the trading deadline. And yes, there have been some in the past. I know first one that comes to mind in 2012 when the Dodgers traded for Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford. We know those were salary dumps at the time. That was the deal with the Red Sox. If you recall, what was that, already a decade ago? But rarely do you get that type of trade at the deadline because you know that this is going to be one that with the money involved, with the players, the prospects, uh, just everything, the entire scope of this isn't something that's going to happen overnight. This is going to take time, and rightfully so, because if you're the organization that's going to give up the sun, moon, stars, and the complete orbit for Soto, you're going to have to really think this out, and this would mean everything for the GM as far as his job being on the line, because if this becomes more bust than boom, then he's going to be out of a job. Whomever that GM may be. So I figured I'd start off with that because when we go through baseball, and I guess before I even get to that, my thought right now, there is no way that this trade is going to happen between now and then. I'm sure you're going to hear a lot of rumblings as we get toward the end of the season, whether it's a thing where Boris is going to put out an ultimatum, trade him now or else. Who knows? Because with Boris, he's unpredictable and you don't know what to expect. But I think right now, even with the way this is all started to shape up, as you know Soto's going to be on his way out, I don't think it's going to happen between now and the end of the regular season. Well, obviously until the trade deadline. But once we get to the offseason, that's when it's going to start to really bubble and percolate as to will Juan Soto be traded after the regular season and before spring training next year. So we could certainly have plenty of time to chew on that when the time comes. As far as the sport itself, speaking of those aforementioned Mariners, 14 in a row, who would have thought? We talked about this on the podcast Thursday where the Mariners were on this roll 
A lot of people thought that this team was underachieving. One of the early disappointments when we looked at this squad at the Memorial Day point of the season. And here they are turning their fortunes and their season around to where they're now nine games over 500. And I'm sure that even with Scott Service, the manager, he said all the right things that yes, even with this winning streak, it's good to have this break. Well, we're going to see as we get ready to start it up this coming weekend as to how the Mariners are going to perform. Because sometimes with these winning streaks, and we all know they're going to end, when you're that hot and then you have a break, you kind of wonder where the focus may go, where the preparation, everything that entails a baseball season when you're riding high and you want to continue to stay hot, that when you have that little stretch like the All-Star break, to where now you have to start it up again. And I know they're going to be pumped up and they're going to be raring to go, but you got to wonder if this break is going to hurt them or help them. So that's something that we'll keep in mind once we get the second half kicked off again. But kudos to what they've done, not only sweeping the Rangers, but everything leading up to this week. And of course, they have their big star, Julio Rodriguez, who will be at the All-Star game and... I understand it's going to be focused on a lot of the other stars in baseball. And because he plays in the Pacific Northwest and a lot of people here back east don't really get to see him, hopefully he'll be on full display tomorrow night when the All-Star game will commence at Dodger Stadium. As far as winning streaks go, the Orioles, who when we last spoke had a 10-game winning streak as they went to Tampa, And they ended up losing two out of three. It actually got snapped on Friday night to where they did bounce back and win in extra innings on Saturday, but then losing seven to five yesterday. And I talked a little bit about this to where the Orioles had to come from nine games under 500. What were they? 35 and 44 to be one over. And now maybe the break will help them. And we'll see how this plays out because the Orioles, when they come out of the break, they're going to host the Yankees for three games. So this could be a stretch where the Orioles did so much to get to that top of the mountain. And just like I mentioned on Thursday, will it be a thing where they'll sputter a little bit coming out of the break or even into the break as we saw losing two out of three and then it'll all come tumbling down on the other side of the mountain? Or will they continue to play consistent, play well, maybe steal a series here from the Yankees and try to at least be relevant in the short term when it comes to a wild card spot in the American League. So that's something that we're also going to have to pay attention to. It wasn't a good week for the Red Sox. They lost four straight to the Rays down in Tampa. And then they did win Friday night in the Bronx against the Yankees, but then they just got blasted the last two days. Well, they lose 11-2 and 13-2, I think, the last couple of games. And then Chris Sale, who came back and pitched... In Tampa, as he's on the mend from Tommy John, and what happens? He gets a line drive off of his pitching hand, so his left pinky is broken. Who knows what the timetable is going to be for him as far as his recovery goes. So to think, they get back their ace. They hope to make a run for a wild card spot, which obviously they're in the mix right now. But to think, him coming back and now going back on the IL, you would think maybe minimum four to six weeks if it's broken and he had to come out of the game yesterday so the Red Sox certainly had a nightmarish week and maybe the break comes at a good time for them as they can regroup and get themselves back on track to start off the second half 
And then the Yankees losing five of six heading into that Red Sox series. No, in fact, they lost four or five. They lost two out of three to the Reds, surprisingly. And then they lose Friday night to where they had lost five of six and then win those back two games. But they lose a key member of their rotation in Luis Severino. He's not going to pitch for a couple of weeks. MRI on his shoulder hasn't come out. I don't know if this is top secret, but he's not going to throw for at least two weeks. And who knows what they're going to do from that point on to see where the shoulder or how the shoulder is going to respond. But I mentioned this last week on the podcast, last Monday, the Yankee pitching staff would worry a little bit. Because Garrett Cole aside, you have to worry about the health of Severino here as we're now more than halfway into a season. Jameson Tyone, although has pitched a little better recently, but in the last five or six outings, not good. Jordan Montgomery, serviceable pitcher, good pitcher, but he's not a guy that's going to take you deep into games. Nestor Cortez pitched better the other night against Cincinnati, but hasn't pitched well here as of late, considering how he's come out of the gate at the start of the season. I'm not going to say that their starting pitching is tenuous, but there is a concern because it's not a matter of what they do here in the regular season. It's all about October. And as I mentioned last week and one more time, Cole, as of right this second, yes, you could pencil him in and think that he's going to perform well, but he is a question mark, if you ask me, because which Garrett Cole are you going to get come game one of the division series? Are you going to get the guy that's going to pitch seven innings, one run, four hit, ten strikeout baseball, or is he a guy that's going to be pulled after two and a third or three and a third, five runs, six hits, two walks, three strikeouts? And then the rest of the rotation come October, huh, your guess is as good as mine. So something to keep an eye on, something to keep in the back of your mind, Yankee fans, because there's still plenty of baseball to be played. We still have to get through, obviously, the rest of this month and then August, September before we can even talk about that. But at least as of right this second, that's something that you'll have to be concerned about. So to think, that's just the American League East. As far as the other divisions, and again, I'll break more of this down come Thursday because I don't want to repeat pretty much what I'm going to say now and say then just to regurgitate all this. But the other thing I will say before we get to the home run derby and the All-Star game is that the Mets had to sweat, fight, scratch, and claw just to win two out of the three games that they won. They won 8 nothing there on Thursday, and then with the rainout on Friday, they had a double dip Saturday to where both games had to go into extra innings and literally, like I said, they had to do anything and everything possible just to win those two games and then in the eighth inning, they blew a lead and they were able to not sweep the Cubs, which would have been nice because the Nationals finally beat the Braves, so the lead is still two and a half in the National League East, so no harm, no foul there. And then you have the Brewers and Cardinals, which are going to, you would think, fight it out for the rest of the summer for the Central. And then the Dodgers, they're going to be off and running in the West with a 10-game lead and 12 in the loss over the Padres. And as we get to the festivities for tonight and tomorrow, the Home Run Derby, I know as a Met fan, Pete Alonso, break out the blue and orange pom-poms, not this guy. I didn't watch the 2019 home run derby in Cleveland, or even last year in Colorado, and chances are I'll probably watch some of it tonight, but I'm not going to be fully invested. I know it's been a lot better now than it has been in years past 
with the timeout and with the clock. I think that's a brilliant idea as opposed to the 10 outs. And yeah, it just seemed like it was forever. It's a little bit more structured now, which makes it entertaining. And it doesn't seem like it's going on forever. But to me, am I going to go crazy whether Pete Alonso wins a third straight home run derby? Absolutely not. Save some of those swings. Save some of those home runs for the rest of the regular season and God willing, the postseason, if you ask me. But it's a spectacle. It's actually better than watching the game, if that's even possible, because the game is a complete bore. It's not like it once was. It's just a total reversal of what it was when I was a boy, when it meant something, when it was a thing where you knew who the National League teams were pretty much from the top of your head, even with the All-Star balloting, etc., where now... You have a lot of first-time All-Stars. You have a lot of... I just don't care anymore. Bottom line. In fact, I'll give you a quick story. I was fortunate enough to go to the 2013 All-Star game, which was at City Field. And I stood for the whole game. National Anthem. The introductions. Fantastic. Sadly, the introductions were part of the highlight of the night. Because if you recall, Matt Harvey was your starting pitcher. So, of course, the building erupted. But here's what you had, and also David Wright had started third base. But what you had that night was the first inning where Matt Harvey automatically got into a jam where he gave up a double on the first pitch to Mike Trout and then hit Robinson Cano in the knee before he promptly struck out the next two batters and then got, I believe, Jose Batista to fly out to end the inning. And then he pitched in the second inning. He, Off the top of my head, he may have gotten a strike out there, but it was pretty much ho-hum. Then later on, David Wright got a hit. One of three National League hits on the night, as I believe they got shut out 3 nothing, And then Mariano coming out of the bullpen to where they played into Sandman. He went to the pitcher's mound, but no players were on the field as they gave him his just-due standing O from both dugouts. And it was just a remarkable scene. His last All-Star game, of course, in New York. Not at Yankee Stadium, but still in the place where he made all of his memories And to me, if you recall, those were the highlights of that All-Star game. And since then, it has been just that, a complete bore. So I don't know what to expect tomorrow night. Again, I'll probably watch more of the Home Run Derby than the All-Star game. That's all you need to know about that. And that's all you need to know about pretty much this first half of the baseball season as we'll get into the second half, quote-unquote, more on Thursday as we look forward to the trade deadline, pennant races, and a complete breakdown of what to expect here in this upcoming part of the schedule. And one last thing, I know after the Home Run Derby, tonight is the Derek Jeter documentary on ESPN. It's a docu-series. I believe they're all one-hour episodes and seven of them, if I'm not mistaken. In fact, I'm more fascinated by that than the Home Run Derby. And the crazy thing is, is that when we look at Jeter's career... It's not like it was marked with controversy. It's not as if it was marked with moments where you could question or wonder or because I'm sure they're going to delve into a few different aspects. Obviously, his upbringing, the togetherness and closeness of his family, the chores, what he had to do at home, and then when he was drafted by the Yankees, his lifelong dream, but him calling his parents and wanting to quit. We pretty much know Derek Jeter's Story, especially living here and witnessing it throughout his whole 20-year career, that I wonder 
what we're really going to learn about Jeter, especially during his playing days. Now, you know there's going to be a segment between he and A-Rod, which I'm sure will divulge something juicy. And not to say that that's what we want to see, but we don't want to just see a documentary about the flip play in 2001 or him diving into the stands in 2004 or the five championships, which he won four and five years there in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I'm sure they're going to talk about 9-11 in 2001 and losing to Arizona. Yeah, this is stuff we already know. So I bring this up now only because let's see with these episodes how they, I'm not going to say portray Jeter because he pretty much with his character, his behavior, etc. throughout pretty much his whole life, let alone his baseball career, has been guarded and has been near perfect. But it's the other stuff that we're going to see. And I could care less about the dating thing with Mariah Carey. And I'm sure, who knows, maybe they'll bring up the basket rumors with him. The parting gifts with some of the affairs or the women that he dated over the years. I could care less about that. And maybe it does get brought up. I would like to know what happened with the Marlins. Because that's also part of his story about why he left. And hopefully it will be an in-depth look of... Not only just his career and what happened, but also the person. Because to me, that's the most important thing. And yes, we know on the surface how Jeter is and how he conducted himself, etc. But now this is, or it should be, an open book. So let's see if we get to experience and witness that over the course of this docuseries, which I'm fascinated to watch. All right, now let's uh, turn our attention from baseball as I break out the golf clubs and... If you're Rory McIlroy this morning, did you sleep well? Did you toss and turn? Were you staring at the ceiling? Were you even counting sheep? Or did you have a few beers and you said, ah, the hell with it, and you slept like a baby? I don't know, but I'm sure that if I was Rory McIlroy, I probably wouldn't have slept a wink, only because it wasn't as if he underperformed or gagged, spit the bit, however you want to call it. For a guy who went into the final round at the top of the leaderboard with Victor Hovland and then you had both cams that were in the mix pretty much the whole weekend, Cameron Young and Smith, and they were pretty much the story the whole weekend up until yesterday where Cam Young had a couple of tough holes there, I believe on 15 and 17, And he was unable to be the guy to win this final golf major of the year. Same for Victor Hovland. Did not perform well there down the stretch. Rory McIlroy, when you look at his scorecard to where he shot a 70, had 16 pars and two birdies. And although he did not perform terrible, he didn't choke none of it. But when Cam Smith starts a back nine with five birdies and knowing at the end of his round yesterday shooting a 64 to where he became your champion, if you're Rory McIlroy, what could you say? You just tip your cap and pretty much in the post-match interview, that's what he said. He said, I'm not a robot. I am human. And paraphrasing, it's tough, but it's okay. There'll be more majors. There'll be more tournaments. Etc. He said all the right things. But you know what? He's absolutely right. You know, it's not as if he hit 
a tee shot into the trees or into the drink to where he shrunk or where he started to perform and was playing tight. You can't knock McElroy despite the fact that he was par the whole afternoon. And we know how he shot over the weekend, in particular Saturday. But yesterday, he was good, but he wasn't great. And in order for him to win this tournament, he had to be great. As we saw what Cam Smith did in him winning his first ever major tournament. And give it up for Cam Smith. He's a guy that a lot of people thought, going back to the Masters, and I believe I even actually picked him to win, that he was a guy that was ready to be on the come up, to take that meteoric rise, to take that next step, to be amongst the top golfers in the world. And I think as of right now, he's number two behind Scotty Scheffler. And here he was yesterday in full bloom on a back nine, albeit, to where he was four strokes behind. He had to put forth a gargantuan effort in order for him to win this thing, and that's what he did. And I'm sure if Rory McIlroy didn't sleep last night, then how the hell do you think Cam Smith slept? He probably hasn't slept because he's probably holding that claret jug saying, how did I win this thing? And I'm sure he relied on his talent and his poise and him just executing his putts, drives, short game, etc. And what you saw there on that back nine was nothing short of remarkable. He did anything and everything that he possibly could to win this tournament. And again, it's not a knock on McElroy. And we know that it's been eight years since he last won And it just so happened that he last won at the Open. Which would have been a nice bookend considering it's been a long time between major championships. But I'm sure it would have been sweet. I'm sure he would have went into this, I'm not going to say off-season because there's still a lot of tournaments to be played. But with the last golf major of the year already in the books, it would have been nice to have that to where when we get to next April with the Masters, he could look at that and say, hey, now I could see if I can go back to back. And as it is, that's not going to be the case. And all you could say is that it led to a thrilling end for a guy that, and Cam Smith that is, for a guy that had a lot of promise coming into this calendar year. And I'm sure a lot of people, including yours truly, thought that he was going to make hay and maybe win a major tournament early on. I'm sure a lot of people thought, whether it be the Masters or even the U.S. Open for that matter. And here it was on the final day where he had to come from behind with a furious attempt to put himself in a position to where when he made that last putt on 18, he was a champ. And you can't even say it was a tough break for McElroy because one more time, he didn't play poorly. He didn't play great. He played good. Obviously, it wasn't good enough. And then, of course, you had the story with Tiger. Him not making the cut. The tearful goodbye. Up 18. As he was emotional. And who knows what's going through his head now. Because you have to wonder whether or not Tiger is seriously considering that his mortality in this sport has crept up on him. 
Not only with him hobbling around the course, but him not performing the way we once knew and saw Tiger. And you have to wonder, was this accident and this injury, was it a little too soon for him to come back? Now, he did play well at the Masters for him. And I understand for him, that still may be subpar, but considering the events of what took place 14 months prior, not only to the point where the accident not only almost cost him his leg, but of course his life, on top of all the back surgeries and even the knee surgeries that he had, going back to the 2008 US Open, Rocco Mediate, when he had that torn ACL, that the body just does not respond or can't respond over the course of a weekend. And it's not as if St. Andrews is this hilly course where he's really have to labor up and down and all around to go through four rounds and 72 holes to have to endure over a weekend where he would have been able to do that in his sleep prior to this accident. I don't know where this leaves him. I think the best of Tiger Woods as far as him being anything close to what he once was, that's long in the rearview mirror. Because he's not going to get any better. And even if his leg is close to or at 100%, let's say by the Masters next year, how do we know that he's going to be anywhere close to a leaderboard come Sunday at Augusta? Or at the US Open, the PGA, etc. And as it is, he's probably going to take time off to rest, recover, I'm sure to a certain extent maybe even rehabilitate. But then again, he's not going to be playing in a bunch of matches as a tune-up leading to the Masters next year. And who knows? It's truly up in the air as to what the future holds for one Eldrick Tiger Woods. And the only thing I could say at this very moment is that I'm sure the mental gymnastics and maybe to a certain extent the psychological gymnastics that's going on inside of his head and his heart is probably at a point to where I'm sure that ferocity, tenacity, and that part of him wants to doubt all the naysayers and say, oh no, I'm going to come back with a vengeance because I am Tiger Woods and I have that will and that assassin-like mentality. But then the body's going to say, Tiger, your best days are behind you. You're not going to shoot a 66 to save yourself from making a cut. Or you're going to shoot 20 under at the U.S. Open. Or you're going to have a five-stroke lead going into the final day at Augusta. I think those days are long gone. And part of it is because the competition is stiff. If you've watched golf over the last few months, you've seen the Cam Smiths of the world, the Scotty Shefflers of the world, Justin Thomas, Rory, and what he almost did yesterday. And those are just four guys. I haven't mentioned, and yeah, I know, the kind of names you go, oh, whether you're Bryson DeChambeau, Brooks Kepka, Dustin Johnson... We know those guys could still win at any given moment, despite the fact that they defected to the live tour. But it's not as if there's no one else on the tour that's even 
competitive. No, it is a competitive field out there. And Tiger, I'm sure, is probably at a crossroads right this very second wondering what his future is going to be. More so for him, forget about the competition because as we all know, he's his own competition. But it's definitely going to be intriguing over the course of these next few months. And I'm sure he's going to think long and hard about it. Because it's easy to say, oh, he's washed up, he's going to retire. But we know he's Tiger Woods. And when he retires, I'm sure that's going to be it. And he's going to know deep in his gut that it's time to walk away. Is that going to happen in the near future? Is that going to happen before the end of the year? Before Augusta? Will Augusta be his last tournament? That, my friends, remains to be seen. All right, a couple of quickies before we go. The NBA, which is certainly quieted down from 10, 12 days ago. Maybe even more than that, off the top of my head. But DeAndre Ayton, who was given an offer sheet by the Indiana Pacers on Thursday to where there was a 48-hour window for the Suns to match that, and they did do so. Now, it was the largest offer sheet in NBA history, four years, $133 million. Now, were they reluctant to do so? Because, as we know, Ayton, number one pick overall back in 2018, has had his moments in the league so far. Has he been dominant? He has not. He has had his moments. And we've seen what he's been able to do in the last couple of postseasons. I'm sure he'd want to forget, and a lot of the fans want to forget, the Game 7 against Dallas in the conference semis. But you're going to get good, and you're going to get bad. And you can say that about any player, I understand. But you have to wonder whether or not the Suns were forced to have to re-sign Aiton. And even though they put their money where their mouths are, so you got to give them credit for that, But knowing that they gave big money to Devin Booker, knowing that there were rumors about a Kevin Durant trade where DeAndre Ayton would have been the focal point of that trade, and even though the Nets, as it's been reported, they weren't interested in bringing back Ayton, but now you can't do anything with him because with him signing this extension and you can't trade him by January 15th, so if any trade were to come about, It's going to have to wait until after the 15th of January. And then I believe there's a stipulation in the contract where a whole year where you can't trade him, even though once you get past that threshold, I'm sure it's a lot easier to trade him. But I believe it has to be upon Aiton's wishes in order for him to be traded to whichever team that may be at that time. But the Suns. Listen, if they wanted Aiton, they probably would have signed him a long time ago, and maybe they were waiting to see how this was going to play out, whether it was the Kevin Durant potential trade aspect of it, or if any team was going to put up an offer sheet, where in the past it used to be, I believe, it used to be a seven-day window, then they cut it to five, and now it's 48 hours. So they had to act fast, and they did do so, so we can't say whether or not They really wanted him or didn't really want him or were they reluctant? The reason why I say reluctant is because if they were that interested or if they were that fully invested in the player, they would have done so at the start of free agency. And we get it that he was a restricted free agent and not a lot of teams are going to come to the forefront. But the Pacers did and the Suns had to put up and they certainly did. So now for the next four years, they're going to have Aiton there. They're going to have Booker there. 
four for $224 million, I believe. And whomever else they're going to bring onto the team. We know Chris Paul's going to be there. Durant, you would think he's not. And that's a whole other set of encyclopedias, which has certainly cooled off from his request to be traded back in early July. So, all up in the air. I think Aiton, still at, what is he, 24 years old, has a lot of potential. But is he going to be that dominant force who's going to be worthy of that type of contract? I mean, we've seen it a million times with a lot of these players where they don't live up to their money, they don't live up to their contract, and not to say Aiton is going to be that guy, he's not that generational, transformative type of player for an organization, but for a guy that tall, that size, you would think in his sleep he'd be 25 and 12, but we understand the NBA is not like that. He's going to be a guy that's probably going to be 18 to 22 and 10 to 12 rebounds. Where you look at a guy like that and you would think automatically in his sleep he would be 25 and 14 a night. So we shall see. Good for the Suns. They did what they had to do and they backed up their talk in regards to their former number one pick. And then onto the NHL. Quieted down a little bit. A lot of players have re-signed with their teams. I know the Devils have made some moves here. We know about them trading for the goalie. Vitek Vanacek from Washington. We also know about the number two pick overall that they selected in the draft. The defenseman there, Simon Nemec. And then now they also get another defenseman from Pittsburgh, John Marino, which they traded their former number one pick, Ty Smith. I felt that maybe they didn't want to go down that road with him considering he had struggled and was a guy that they probably didn't want to groom or didn't want to deal with. Maybe there were some attitude issues, who knows. But they bring in John Marino, a steady defenseman who could anchor the back line for the Devils. So they feel that maybe that's a bit of an upgrade. They'll trade the pick to Pittsburgh and deal with that later on if there's going to be any type of who knows. You figure once you trade that player away and he stays in your division, there could be a scenario of retribution or trying to prove his worth knowing that the Devils gave up on him. But between them getting Marino and then the goalie, but also signing Andre Palat, the former Tampa Bay Lightning player, to bring his experience, his attitude, his pedigree to a Devil team that certainly needs it to go along with Jack Hughes. And that was as shrewd as a deal that you could possibly get if you're the Devils. Now, is he a guy that's going to be an automatic 30, 35 goal scorer year in and year out? Can't say that, but he is more of an intangible player. He's a guy that players in the locker room are going to look to for leadership that's going to know what it takes to win and those are players that you're going to need to have if you want to build that winning culture so five years 30 million dollars I'm sure it's more for that and yes of course he's going to provide some punch goal scoring etc he's not a guy that's going to light up the net night in night out but he's going to be that guy to be clutch to get that big goal when they absolutely need it and Palat, that signing with that team, was brilliant. Which is not to say, on the flip side of that, when it comes to the Islanders and what they've done this offseason, because I don't know what the game plan is. And you could pretty much look back to the firing of Barry Trotz as the one big question mark leading into this offseason 
Why did they fire the coach? I get it. There must have been a difference of opinion when it comes to certain things. But we know Trotz was successful here in his four years as coach. And now that he's gone and their only move this offseason was bringing in the defenseman from the Canadians in which they gave up their number one pick for. And since then, they have done absolutely zilch. They haven't brought in a bona fide goal scorer, a guy that you know you can trust and could be the linchpin of an offense that you know when you need a goal, that's the guy to go to. As I mentioned way back when on a podcast, a Pat LaFontaine type, I get it. They're not a lot of those guys that are growing on trees, but you had one in a Johnny Gaudreau who has had a track record and a guy that signed with the Columbus Blue Jackets who felt good about the direction of their organization. Was a phone call made to his representation, Lou Lamorello? I'm sure there was, but he's not in blue and orange. And it makes you wonder, Lou Lamorello, for all of his genius, going back to his days with the aforementioned Devils, winning the Cups, even going to Toronto, and pretty much what he's done here as an executive for the Islanders, bringing in a coach, bringing in certain players that have contributed, that have done well, that have brought them almost to the cusp of making it to a Stanley Cup final. But as we all know, almost isn't good enough. And now that they regressed in a year where they opened up a new building, didn't make the playoffs, knew that there had to be a push, considering that the Rangers were one step away from making it to a cup final. The Devils have made some moves here to be respectable and maybe make a push in the Metropolitan Division. And then the Islanders are just standing pat with their hands under their rear ends, just sitting on them wondering, okay, what are we going to do here? That's what it looks like from afar. I'm sure they're working the phones and have tried to do their best to bring in players, but where are the results? And as an Islander fan, I'm a little bit frustrated and I will say it, aggravated that they've made minimal moves here to improve the team. And sadly, it starts with the coach. Who knows? Will Lane Lambert be the next Isle Arbor? Obviously, right now, you can't say that. But Trotch... We know his track record, winning a cup, the success he had with the Islanders here in these four years. Granted, this last year was a step back. But now, as the dust is starting to settle here with NHL free agency and them not making a move or two to say, ah, okay, we can see what they're doing here. This will put them in contention or maybe even over the top. And to me, they haven't done that. It's almost as if they've gone backwards and regressed in trying to get to the Holy Grail and get to the point to where they could put themselves in the position to win the Stanley Cup. Who knows if he's going to pull a rabbit out of his hat in the days and weeks to come, but as of right now, Lou Lamorello, not looking good, my guy. That'll do it, my good people. Another pot in the books. As always, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for listening to me babble about everything that's going on in the world of sports. And as I mentioned at the top, if you haven't done so with your participation that you know I do not take for granted, I understand you could get your sports elsewhere, and you probably do, and understandably and rightfully so. But knowing that you're here, and if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. Throw me a few stars, write a review. It'll just increase the visibility as I try to get the name the podcast, the word out there 
for those who aren't familiar with it, so if you could do so, please, I would really appreciate that. If you want to hit me up with any questions, comments, criticism, praise, or suggestion, you could do so at the following on social media, whether it's TikTok, the J Reels Podcast, Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, J Reels One, just a number, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page, or the old fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Please, whatever you want to send, whatever you want to submit, I'll be more than happy to hit you guys and gals up ASAP. And speaking of send, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A T as in Tom, R E O N as in Nancy. I actually put up a post that I mentioned last week that I was going to do to talk a little bit about this podcast and the direction of what I, where I want to take it, especially with those who want to contribute on that platform. And if you do so, I will forever be grateful and thankful for your contribution because what that's going to do is going right into what you hear through this microphone, into your earbuds and speakers, whether it's the production of this podcast with the equipment, the website, the upkeep of everything that I take care of independently. I don't have a team. I don't have a staff. So yours truly is doing it all. Because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. This is my why. This is my reason. This is my purpose to share my thoughts, my wisdom, my knowledge, my opinions, critiques, praise on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>